And we've covered quite a bit of it, one of the longer chapters in uh, the book of Exodus. The last time we met, a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, we uh, closed out looking at hyssop and how hyssop was used. Hyssop is basically a, a plant <clears throat> in the Holy Land, in that Middle Eastern region, used for a number of things. And one of the things that, was, that it was used for, obviously, is for the, uh, uh, the application of the blood during the... Uh, Passover ritual. Uh, so we do learn, of course, from this uh, in uh, verse 22, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door uh, of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. So the Lord is essentially sparing the Hebrew children from the angel of death. Uh, and I mentioned to you before that no doubt there were some uh, among the Hebrew children that um, didn't believe or didn't subscribe or were not obedient to this particular uh, command that the Lord had given to Moses to, to convey to the children of Israel. Uh, sometimes people ask, were, were they spared? The answer is no, they were not spared. It was required of everyone uh, to follow this uh, direction that the Lord had given. On the other hand, were there or had there been Egyptians that were, uh, and no doubt, probably had converted to being uh, followers of Yahweh, if they followed this convention, their families would have been spared. So it is obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior as we look at this that the Lord is blessing. Just as I mentioned Wednesday night, the Lord doesn't bless Israel because of who, uh, of the people that is in Israel. He blesses Israel because of the covenant that he made with Abraham. So he blesses his word. All right. Mr. Logan, if you would, next slide. Thank you, sir. So beginning in verses 24 through 27, uh, the Lord reminds the Hebrew uh, children that this is going to be a, a permanent, if you please, uh, uh, ordinance that is being established with these people. Uh, verse 24, you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you just as he has promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you will say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in e Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our household. So the people bowed their heads in worship, and the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So this is a, uh, essentially a permanent uh, <clears throat> ordinance that the Lord established with his people. It is still observed today, not necessarily in the same bloodletting ritual, although there are some Hasidic Jews that do follow that, but certainly with the Passover meal 
and the uh, Seder that, that, that uh, we celebrate as the Lord's Supper, they celebrate um, obviously as the, as the Passover meal. And it's to be continual, and it will be continual until the Lord uh, comes. So uh, the Passover, I remember having a discussion when uh, I was at Liberty about what was the greatest miracle in the Old Testament. And so there was a, a group that said, well, there's parting of the Red Sea. And then there were others that said, well, it was Passover. So we went back and forth. We were uh, required to, <laughs> to write a paper on it uh, justifying our position. So I remember there were just a few that said Passover. Uh, and when we went through and we presented those particular uh, papers, the professor said he's he said, I'm not sure if we can distinguish between one or the other, but this is true. The, the one thing that is true and the one thing that is special is that the Passover preceded the parting of the Red Sea. Had there not been a Passover, there would not be the parting of the Red Sea. So for the Hebrew people, most every miracle after the miracle of the Passover occurred because of the Passover. So the statement here, Passover was the greatest work of redemption performed in the Old Testament, and obviously this side of the cross prior to Christ being crucified. We read this morning, uh, actually turn with me there, Luke 22. It's, it's, uh, I read from it almost every time we, uh, we partake of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Luke uh, goes into quite a bit more detail than the other uh, gospel accounts of what's taking place there uh, with the, the Last Supper. Now, John goes into a lot of detail about what's called the Upper Room dis Discourse. But you, uh, I began, and I read every, uh, every Lord's Supper beginning in verse 14, and we read it this morning. When the hour had come, he sat down on the twelve apostles with him. And it proceeds through that, okay? All the way down to verse 20, where it says, he, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So in about six or seven verses, the Lord uh, conveys the importance of the Last Supper. There are four cups in the Passover. We're not going to cover them, those this evening. We'll cover them later on. But you will notice he says he took the cup after supper. And if you go back and look uh, at verse 17, then he took the <coughs> cup. There were a number of cups that surrounded each of the placements at the table. And each of the cups had a, a particular representation. So one of these is the cup of redemption. And that's the last cup that he drinks of. That's the one that's mentioned in, in verse 20. So the Lord, because of his work on the cross, uh, talked about remembrance this morning. We looked at that in 1 Peter and, of course, in, as we partook of the Lord's Supper. This is to applied uh, in to all generations. Verse 16 says, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So we, you and I will observe 
the ordinances of the Lord's Supper in heaven. Uh, that's one of the remembrances that the Lord is going to, that the Lord provides for us in order that we exalt uh, his son. Uh, the last portion of verse 20 says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The covenant of the Passover began the Exodus. Now, we're in the 12th chapter. There's a lot that's taken place up to chapter 12. But the, but the uh, actual Exodus, the fleeing or removal of the Hebrew children from Egypt doesn't start till after the Passover. So the Lord is basically saying there's a new exodus from sin that now is taking place. That's the covenant in my, the new covenant in my blood. So a great deal of symbology and, and intricacy. We talk a great deal. In fact, one of the uh, one of the messages I'm going to speak on uh, during the Christmas season is on worship and the, the mode of worship that the Lord expects. Well, this is one of those modes of worship. We're not to, uh, if we're physically able uh, and we have been obedient, we are to participate in the observation of the Lord's Supper. Uh, that is part of the extent of his grace to us so that we do remember the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's go back now to the book of Exodus. So remember that. The Exodus doesn't actually begin until the Passover is completed. And then the people start to move. Okay? Passover accomplished a twofold work. Uh, first of all, the enemy was defeated. The Egyptians were defeated. Now we do know that uh, as they left to, to head uh, out into the wilderness toward the Red Sea, that Pharaoh and his army would follow them, but the Lord dealt them a final defeat. So the enemy was defeated. Now that is also representative of sin. Sin also was defeated. And the second thing is that God gives his, his children, his Hebrew children, the children, children of Israel, they are not only set free from slavery, but he gives them a new identity. They now bear the marks of a nation. Now, they're not in the land of the, that nation, but they are a nation as they move across the Middle East up to um, Kadesh Barnea and prepare to go into the land. He gives them a new identity. He makes new promises with them. Uh, he develops their walk and a new life altogether in fellowship. He will put his stamp, his ID stamp, on them with the giving of the law. The law identifies the Hebrew people as his people. Okay? So, verse 20, 27, 28, probably, uh, certainly some of the more important uh, Verses contained here. The latter part of that, so that uh, verse 27, so the people bowed their heads and worshiped, which is a 
tremendous response. The people were obedient to what Moses had told them. Yahweh gave Moses the, the instructions. Moses delivered that to the people, and the people responded positively. They had seen the nine plagues. They'd seen what had taken place in Egypt. Even the Egyptians were aware of that. Pharaoh was aware of that. Verse 28 says, The children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now, this is one of the few times in the Old Testament where the Hebrew children did what they were told to do. And as we go through toward the end of Exodus, we'll start to see there's, there's some rebellion. So this, this right here, if you want to label something in your Bible, you could say complete obedience. We're going to come to some incomplete obedience. Whether they're, eh, well, I'll do this and maybe the Lord will do this. So just rem remember that. This is complete obedience uh, of the Hebrew children to what the Lord had commanded through Moses. <clears throat> Um, and the immediate reaction was worship. There is fear, obviously, that is associated with the Passover, but it, was, it should have been a, a righteous fear among the Hebrew uh, children, and it prompted them to worship. In the book of Job, toward the end of the book of Job, uh, the Lord appears to Job and he begins to say, Job, okay, I, I know that you've been suffering and so forth. And I've heard lots of uh, uh, basically some false reports, some fake news about who I am. Well, he said, Job, listen, I'm here to set the record straight. And the first one I'm going to set the record straight with is you. Your friends will fall in line after I set the record straight with you. Where were you, Job, when I created the worlds? So the Lord commands, the Lord proclaims, and then if you read the latter part of the book of Job, Job worshiped. And the Lord, the Bible records that the Lord removed the, um, the boils and so forth from Job, when he prayed for his friends, sometimes friends, sometimes enemy, enemies. Next slide, Mr. Logan. And these, these accounts here in the latter part of this, uh, verses 27 and 28, are, when you see the word worship in the Bible, and it follows, and, it's, and it, it is an obedient worship, that's always a good thing. You should have them marked in your Bible when you come to them. Sometimes we come to the word worship and there, is, there are uh, sinful connotations associated with it. The worship of the golden calf is one example. But when we come to this, it reminds us that when we look at what the Lord is commanding the Hebrew children, these are the most important words of the whole account. They listened, they heard, they listened, they were obedient. And they did not, at least at this point in time, fail to obey the command of the Lord. So the destroyer comes in verses 29 and 30. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. 
and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. So a very sobering couple of verses here. Uh, will not, Abraham asked, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer to that is, of course, he will. But he does right by his word, by himself. And so this takes place. Now, remember this. <clears throat> There's a great hue and cry, and in many cases there should be, over the children that are being um, killed in the Middle East and also in Ukraine or any other place for that matter where there's, there's conflict. In Chicago, in many of our large cities where they're being shot, stray bullets and so forth. This is a horrible, horrible thing. But one of the things that we have to remember is that children that have not been exposed or do not have an understanding of um, uh, our, the God-likeness that is within them. If they pass from this life, they go into the life that is to come as believers. So we must always rem remember that. We look back, there's a lot of moral, I, would, I talked this morning about moral clarity, but there's a lot of moral indifference because we think we're, we're smart when we say this, but we don't, and believers should understand what the scripture teaches. So no doubt there were uh, firstborn among the Hebrew children, uh, among the Egyptian children rather, that were um, killed by the destroyer that went into the presence of the Lord. I, think, I don't think we think, think about that quite often. By the way, um, toward the end of World War II there was this great dilemma over whether or not to use the atomic bomb but more than that we had been firebombing uh, much of Germany and Japan and a lot of it uh, was on the civilian population it wasn't on the German army or the Japanese army, it was on the civilian population. And so there was a great uh, hue and cry out of a lot of people during, toward the end of World War II that we're, we're, we're burning babies, we're, we're doing all in Vietnam. I remember vividly Vietnam and the, uh, some of my friends that were in uh, the service during Vietnam came back and they were literally sped upon and called uh, baby killers. Well, the decision was made that in order to bring the war to the quickest end possible, that the Allies would bomb and bomb indiscriminately. And America was part of that decision. So it is a hard thing, but again, no doubt the children that were not at an age of accountability went home to be with the Lord. The adults, not so much. 
So when the Lord moves, that's a great name, by the way, the destroyer. When the Lord moves, he moves to save, but he's not going to change his word. This is what I said, this is what I will do. So let it be written, so let it be done. So the Lord struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt, we are told there. Uh, there's been a number of uh, excavations done in Egypt and uh, pit house. In fact, in Exodus 11:15, it says that uh, the mill girl would not be uh, spared uh, or the prisoner of war that is in the dungeon. So the destroyer passed over all of Egypt. Now, the plague was directed against two significant Egyptian gods. We've talked about this for a number of weeks. Osiris was the Egyptian god that was thought to be the giver of life, their creator, so to speak. And so, obviously, the destroyer was greater than Osiris. Osiris didn't exist. So, and secondly, the supposed deity of Pharaoh himself, who likened himself to be the son of the gods, Osiris being one and many others, Ra and others, uh, and certainly he lost the, his eldest son as well. Now I'm going to close with this tonight. There's been a great deal of archaeological work that's been done in Egypt and in Israel, Mesopotamia, those areas, uh, and uh, it continues to be carried out. <coughs> many, many years ago, when... Uh, I can't remember, there's an Englishman that discovered the tomb of uh, uh, King Tut. And he also made, uh, he ventured into the Great Sphinx <coughs> in that area. And there was found within the Great Sphinx a shrine that records a promise from the Egyptian gods vowing that Tutmose IV would succeed Amenhopten II. And Amenhopten II is believed to be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Um, and the, it's in hieroglyphics, of course. It took a while for them to, uh, to translate it. But this unique promise from the gods that the eldest son, who would have been Amenhopten III, that the eldest son would take his father's place as Pharaoh was perhaps because Thutmose IV was not his father's firstborn son. So these are names of two individual, uh, or rather Thutmose IV was to succeed, rather follow Amenhopten II. But we found from this that Thutmose IV was not his father's firstborn son because the firstborn was killed during the Passover. Hence they believed that the secondborn son needed special protection from the gods. So Tutmose IV, who succeeded Amenhopten the second rather, what, we, what they found in this inscription and in these digs was that he was not the oldest son of Pharaoh. He was the second oldest. 
So the thought is, again, this lends veracity to the account that takes place here in the book of Exodus. Now we're going to stop there this evening. We have a few more verses, but they become, uh, <clears throat> they become somewhat detailed uh, and how they get, are getting prepared, how the Hebrew people are getting prepared to leave uh, Egypt. Any comments or questions on what we've covered this evening? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're grateful tonight for your word. <clears throat> we thank you that as you guide us into the mode of worship that you prefer.